Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. I'm Scott Challoner, and I'm joined on today's programme by Troy Stewart. Troy is a director at Stewart Partners Limited, a business providing solutions for a number of needs. Troy, welcome to the programme, and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Yeah, good morning, Scott, and thanks for having me. Thanks ever so much for taking the time to come on to the air with us. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast, Troy, is to address a variety of different perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you, because leadership has many different faces, doesn't it? It does have many different faces, but I think um, particularly highlighted at a time like this, I think leadership means actually positivity. I think to, to help leading your um, staff and people around you, there's actually a level of positivity uh, to help carry people along in, in at times of, you know, no doubt, big crisis for a lot of people. And it's really tested this uh, current COVID-19 situation, um, the ability of business, hasn't it, to be proactive, but also be reactive to respond quite quickly and make quick decisions to changing guidelines and changing circumstances. One great example being um, just at the weekend when Boris Johnson came onto the air, announced um, his exit strategy for the uh, the UK COVID-19 lockdown and expected businesses to be open from pretty much the very next day in some cases. Um would you describe yourself, Troy, um, if we take this away from politics just for a moment, as more of a proactive leader who likes to get on top of difficulties as and when they arise, or more of a reactive one who sort of sits back, takes stock a little bit, sees how matters develop, and then decides to take action from there? I would guess I would describe myself as proactive, um, and probably sometimes too much so. I would probably be a, a little bit more gung-ho and say, look, we need to be getting on with stuff. And um, so, yes, I would definitely be on the proactive side, Scott. And in terms of how um, the business has had to respond to the crisis, has it been quite a difficult uh, transition or has um, your, the team kind of really taken it in their stride? Because we have heard a lot of great stories, haven't we, about businesses really mucking in, employees getting their head down, whether they've had to keep going in on site or whether they've had to adapt to working remotely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, been a, it's, been a, it's been a testing time for all businesses, hasn't it? But I think from our perspective, it was very difficult in the first week or two when the lockdown was announced. Um, we had an awful lot of staff that were obviously quite rightly very concerned. Um, nearly all of the trades that we were involved in were, were key workers, so it was it was quite clear to to us, you know, as running the business, that we had to keep operating. We had to keep providing services to our customers because they were providing services to all to all the other critical key workers. So. It was a very difficult time to start with and actually saying to, to the, the staff, look, um, you know, we've, we've got to keep our doors open. We've got to adapt. We've got to have the social distancing. We've got to be careful. But guys and girls, I'm afraid we have to, we have to work. We reduced you know, staff in the office and all that sort of thing, but there was a number of people that could, could work from home. But the majority in our, in our trades had to be on site to um, do their jobs. And there's been an awful amount of pressure on leaders as well to provide that much needed reassurance. Um, but even though there has been sort of so much uncertainty, I mean, there's been leaders that essentially sometimes don't necessarily know much more than those around them, do they? So sometimes trying to provide answers when answers aren't really there can be quite challenging. So it takes a real level headedness as well to uh, sort of direct uh, oneself through this uh, current situation. It takes not a lot of level headedness. I think. I think it takes a bit of reading the guidance because, and, and, and perhaps not taking too much notice of the press, 
the press like to create problems, perhaps sometimes that aren't always there because that's obviously what sells news. So it takes that level-headedness to sort of see through the the, 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 the fluff and look at the look at the facts and and then then apply a certain amount of common sense. Um, I think that's really what we all are, are expected to do. And actually, I going back to what the, the Boris Johnson announced at the weekend, I, I welcomed that. I, I actually thought that would come two weeks quicker, if I'm honest, because. We were we were we weren't told to stop working. We were told to work from home if we can, and if you can't, then you then you can go to work. And really, all he did on Sunday was reiterate that message that yes, you can be working, you should be working. If, if and if you can work from home, work from home. But if you can't, you should go to work. And I thought that was very good advice. Mm. And just for the benefit of uh, the listeners tuning into this, we are recording this episode on the 15th of May 2020. So this is just five days after that address um, from Boris Johnson took place on uh, May the 10th, uh, the Sunday just gone um, at the time um, I'm speaking now. Now, um, Troy, um, if we think about this um, crisis at the moment, I mean, it is often said that um, times of adversity do bring out the best in people. Um, Have you found it quite um, sort of a positive experience in a way, having the experience of going out of your comfort zone and trying to navigate through this crisis. And the same goes for your employees as well. Have you found that they're really bringing out the best in themselves during this time and it's proving to be good in their development? I, I think it actually has a, has a, it, it, it either brings out the best or the worst, Scott, actually. Mm. And, and, we've, and we've seen both extremes um, in our staff. And, and, and thankfully, the vast majority is brought out the best. And 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 it's brought out an awful lot of goodwill and a lot of support for everybody that, that's you know having having to go to work. Um, you know we, we've been very lucky. You know where we are down in Devon, we have not had the the high numbers that you've seen elsewhere. So you know we, we have to be very thankful in, in that respect. Um, but yes, I do agree. It it, it it's brought it's, it's certainly brought out in the majority the best of human nature. Unfortunately, it's also brought out some of the worst in some of the in the minority. And then when it comes to sort of the people management side of uh, leadership as well, have you found that you've had to adapt your usual approach um, in light of uh, what's going on at the present time? It's required an awful lot more um, hands-on, if you like, face-to-face and speaking to people on a, on a daily, if not twice daily basis. So uh, a huge amount of my job has been actually seeing all the staff, if, you know, at least sort of twice a day. And, you know, we're, we're talking 150, 200 people, and it's just been a case of giving that actually that reassurance to people that we're here, we're doing what we can. They're doing a good job, appreciating what they're doing for, for both us and for our customers and giving them that, I think, like I said, that bit of positivity that people were, you know, and, and trying to allay some fears, you know, that were, that were natural, but, but also probably blown out but slightly out of proportion in a lot of places. Mm. It takes him a leader, doesn't it? It's just um, get a little bit of a grip on things uh, sometimes and just um, do away with the uh, the hysteria in a way, I suppose. Now, um, we've talked... Very much so, yes. Mm. We've talked an awful lot there, Troy, about um, sort of your leadership style, um, I suppose, if you will. But as you've sort of developed through uh, your career, what would you say have been some of the influences behind that style of leadership that you've taken on and maybe some of the people that you've looked up to as well alongside? I, th- I think... The main influences I had was was, was a, as a younger man, um, you know, when I was just a normal employee work, and I worked with various other um, people, and that was the that, that was the best le- the teaching I had. I think was actually just being a member of staff in a organisation, um, and, and you see it from you know I've seen it from both sides of the coin, 
And uh, I think that's given me my strongest influence. And then, then aside from that, it's probably been my father. You know, my father um, really was instrumental in starting the business. And, uh, and you know, I'm the third generation. Um, and, you know, the, the influence of my father and, and my grandfather before him, I think, would be my two strongest influences. It's quite interesting that you mentioned, of course, um, your father there, because I think parents um, can sometimes be some of the most influential leaders out there alongside mentors as well, people who you encounter in business who are really, really good advisors um, in a way. And I think sometimes when it comes to leadership in this country, when we think of that word, we're often tempted to think about essentially public eye leaders aren't we people who are politicians people who are sports personalities celebrities etc and i think sometimes recognition for good leadership within business and even within the family setting can sort of fall by the wayside can't it i i think it very can i mean sometimes we are um overawed by fame aren't we sometimes as a, as a people um but 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 no certainly my influences would, would be you know closer to home um rather than many external influences um, I suppose a strong one when I was growing up if I wanted to pick somebody famous would have been Margaret Thatcher actually she was a, that was a strong you know good or bad whichever way you, you know whatever your political views are but nevertheless she was quite an admirable person in what she tried to achieve I would say Thatcher's an incredible example just because even though she did divide opinion even those who are very much on the left of the political spectrum can still appreciate um, the good things that she uh, that, that she did as well and she was um, an incredibly uh, stoic leader um, for certain um, based upon all of the business um, experience that um, you've had then Troy sort of uh, growing up of course with the influence of your father and now of course helping run the business um, yourself um, if you were to give some advice to a say young person who was looking to start their own sort of business maybe make it in a leadership role within a firm what sort of advice would you have uh, to give them um, for the future i think my one piece of advice for anyone to start a business is keep it simple business isn't complicated it's um other people make business complicated but the actual business whether you're providing a service you're making something you're selling something whatever you're doing it's, it's doing something and retaining the margin uh, you know that, that dirty word profit that we all have to have but it's maintaining the profit so my one piece of advice Keep it simple, work hard, bring people along with you and you'll succeed. And that aspect of bringing people along with you is so, so important as well, isn't it? Because I suppose, um, of course, excluding those who are uh, sole traders in a way, if you don't have a team of people around you, especially in um, a business sense, you're not necessarily leading anything, are you? And um, to take people with you, you have to obviously show that you can provide that reassurance that we've already talked about and that you're really looking out for uh, them as well. You do, you do. I mean, uh, yeah, we, we, we all sort of started in business with, you know, one-man bands and then two, then two and three. And as you build that team, it, it becomes more about the team than it does about you. And, 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 you know, we say on a regular basis now, look, we're only as good as our staff. And that is, that is a fact. And, we, you know, you, you have to promote, encourage and train and, and, and bring the whole staff, the whole team along with, I hate the word vision, but, but you know, that, Mm. your vision if you like or where you see the future and they've got to buy in and and but i think the, the, the easiest way to do that is people like to be involved in things that are successful so keeping a business moving forward keeping it changing keeping it looking at the future actually also helps keep the, the staff and the team keen and looking forward as well I think that's absolutely right, Troy. And if we do think about the uh, the future very much so before we do wrap things up on the programme today, do you give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months holds for yourself and for Stuart Partners and also what you hope to achieve, not just in that time in getting through COVID-19, but also what your ambitions are for beyond the pandemic as well? 
I, I think the next 12 months, we're, we're, I mean, fortunately, we're, we're already seeing signs of um, the economy picking up here in the southwest. I mean, obviously, we are a big tourism uh, destination, so that side of the economy is, is obviously non-existent. But the, the commercial and the development side is, is starting to kick off. So we are seeing things very slowly starting to come back. Um, you know, we are a long way down from where we would expect to be. So the next 12 months, I would like to think we will get back to close to pre-COVID levels of trading. I do think then for businesses that are, you know, that are well financed and have been well run in the past, there will be a huge amount of opportunity because out of adversity, there is always opportunities for businesses to expand, take on um, new opportunities. roles, new jobs, and I think there will also be that one positive from a business point of view, not from a staff point of view, but a positive is that there will be um, a higher level of unemployment, which is not good for the country, but on the the other hand, it will enable businesses like us to actually employ more staff and and, and a higher grade of staff. There hasn't been the opportunity in the last three or four years. We've had effectively full full employment in the Southwest, and... um, we look forward to being able to actually upgrade our um, our staff, you know, with new and new and um, new and better people. Hopefully, mm, certainly seems as if uh, there's some uh, light at the end of the tunnel. Certainly, uh, Troy, and um, I think it would be fantastic if, um, in the next year, once we start to see these hopes coming to fruition in a way, we could even perhaps have you back on the air with us just to catch up on how the businesses are getting on as well. Um, we are just about out of time today, unfortunately, but I've got to say, um, Troy, it's been um, a real pleasure and also a real insightful experience having you on the air with us and i can't thank you enough of course for taking the time to come and speak with me for the listeners benefit especially no you're welcome scott it's been good to speak to you and um yeah thank you for your time thanks ever so much troy and do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well for sure thank you appreciate that Thanks ever so much. That was Troy Stewart, Director at Stewart Partners Limited. Uh, Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, He is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland itself. Um, Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence as one of the most prominent politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair, and having served for 28 years as the MP for the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough constituency. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help, I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing 
staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time but to others around you and the sector that you're working in that will be really important do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the covid19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the, the cyber security side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level 
the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by 
local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to 
everything being London-centric, I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think
Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June, this obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why 
the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. 
we want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority, and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him 
which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.